this is Tara. Hi, it's Eric. And we are once again going to be sharing a capital story where we explore the intersections of the life and faith. And today, Eric, you are interviewing. Yeah, I get to talk to another Eric, Eric Shoney. (laughs) (laughs) Two Eric's. There's lots of Eric's around Mm -hmm. here. But the impetus for the conversation was, you know, it's Earth Day coming up soon. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to talk to someone who knows a thing or two about the Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, Eric... He's, he's like a weather doctor. He's like a weather doctor, yeah. practically. Right. So, Eric, do you have a PhD? I don't yeah. know if you're technically a doctor, but... I, let's call him Dr. Eric. Eric. Weather doctor. He is an atmospheric scientist, has been for over a decade, um, works with the National Weather Service, and like mm. I said, knows a thing or two about the Earth and about science. So we just wanted to talk to him about... Yeah. Issues of conservation and I mean, weather is in the news. Weather's in the a news a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and also like, how should we be thinking about these these issues around mm-hmm. conservation and mm-hmm. weather from the perspective of, of faith, right? Yeah, as that intersection of science and faith. They right. are not mutually exclusive. Right, right. So that's what we wanted to talk about today, and I'm excited for you to listen in. So here is Eric Shoning on Capital Stories. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, and... Eric too, Eric one, <laughs> I don't know which, which Eric can have the the one title. But Eric, I'm, I'm here with Eric Schoening, and I'm excited to talk to you about a variety of things. The impetus for this conversation really was kind of Earth Day. It was right around this time, and it was just this desire to learn from someone about what it looks like for us to be good stewards of God's creation, right? And, and we'll, we'll get to some of that practical tips on on how to how to take care of the earth but before we start i wanted to get familiar with who we're talking to so why don't you just give us a a bit of your background in science and and professionally and and maybe also some of your background in faith yeah sure thanks eric as you said my name is eric Schoning. i have been coming to uh, capital church for about 15 years now if you don't know me it may be because i tend to hop around the services a lot my schedule professionally is kind of all over the place, but when possible, I'm at a Saturday nights in Salt Lake City. A so. long time standard in the Saturday services. So professionally, I am a meteorologist. I uh, work for the National Weather Service. I should probably go without saying that any of my opinions here are my own personal opinions and do not reflect the National Weather Service. But I, I do love working for the National Weather Service. We're a government agency. Our mission is you know, protecting lives and livelihoods through weather forecasts and weather information. So it's definitely something that really, it's science, but it also feels like public service. It's something that we need. And I I think something that despite the jokes, we're actually quite good at. So (laughs) you can predict the the future with it. (laughs) (laughs) To to a point. It's still, it's always going to be predicting the future, which is always going to be tough no matter what the field is. Yeah. I I didn't know that the the mission of the weather service was people first. Like that's an interesting, protecting lives and livelihoods. Yeah. And and we have service in our name and we really kind of view ourselves that way, that we're serving the public and we're serving our partners, which tend to be city, county, state, and federal agencies that are involved in making decisions that keep people safe and help protect their property and that sort of thing. So we do what we can. We said it was going to rain today and it rained today. It's raining right now. I've been a meteorologist with the Weather Service for 15 years now, about the same time I've been coming to Capitol, all here in Salt Lake City. And it's you know, something I've, it's a career I've really enjoyed and one that really allows me to 
explore and grow my love of science. Yeah. yeah. Which tell me more about that. Cause you mentioned you have a background in atmospheric sciences. That's what you got your degree in, but you were telling me that you have an interest in all things science. And I want to kind of, yeah, into that yeah, absolutely. So from a very young age, I was very interested in animals and science and nature. It was just something that always inspired me. Something that I always really appreciated and something that as I grew, I thought I can really make a career out of this. Mm. And the hardest part, honestly, was picking a science. I love science to this day. It's, it's a lifelong passion. Whenever my wife Anna and I go to a new city, we're always seeking out the Natural History Museum or the Science Museum or both. So it's something that it's a lifelong love of learning and exploring the universe and the world and how it works. Yeah. And I think it's worth pressing in here a little bit on, on this particular topic about your, your lifelong love of, of exploring how the world works is, is pretty central to your faith too. It's not a separate thing from your faith. No. Um, Talk, talk about this. Yeah. I probably approached faith a little bit differently than a lot of people. I think even as I was growing up and trying to decide what I believed and what rang true with me, it was still with a very analytic Mm -hmm. sort of approach. I did a lot of reading about different religions and uh, things like that. I did a lot of exploring Christianity early in life, especially in adolescence and teenager years. And thankfully, you know, I had some, I had some really good friends who pointed me in the right direction and were very supportive of this and accepting of this approach. Nobody said you're approaching religion wrong. Yeah. Were you, were you raised in like a, a Christian home or like what was your upbringing like? So to- both my parents were raised Catholic and we kind of went to the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. My parents were searching at the time too. Mm-hmm. They were trying to figure out where they fit and what church they fit in. And in some ways, I, I'm a little jealous of people who were raised in the church and had that environment. But at the same time, I wouldn't change anything. It gave me that freedom to explore what I truly believed. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, I think God knew that's what I needed was the freedom to come to my own conclusions. Yeah. And, you know, he was the one who you know blessed me with the kind of mind that I have this very analytical scientific mind and so i think he knew hey this is the best path for you it's it's gonna be the slow path to me but but looking back it's one of those things it's almost a cliche but it's true looking back i can see where god was in every part of that journey i can see the way he guided me and eventually led me to faith and my parents as well and thankfully i found capital shortly after i moved to salt lake city and as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, so. <laughs> here you are. Uh, tell me more. I mean, I want to dig into that that exploration process a little bit more and just kind of get in your head on, I think it, we hear a lot about this, this kind of incompatibility, so to speak, with, with faith and with science. And there's this, this kind of tension between the supernatural power of God and, and the, the very observable natural scientific um, discovery. So like there, there's been clashes in the his, in history about faith and science and, and you have approached, you know, your faith with a scientific mind and kind of came to a different conclusion than what, 
what the stereotype might be. So I want to understand more about that, what, what, what that was like in your head and as you explored and, and even maybe how you think of it now. As you mentioned, you know, obviously there have been clashes over the centuries between scientists and the church. And it's one of those things that despite the portrayals of what, you know, what some people may think scientists are, most scientists, I mean, first off, many scientists are people of faith like myself. I think it's a lot more than you would imagine. And most of them are just kind of trying to figure out how the world works. And if you've got that faith background, you want to figure out how did God do this? Mm -hmm. What methods did God use <laughs> to make this amazing thing? Yeah. And uh, it's one of those things that I never really saw the conflict. I you know, I read the Bible and you know, said it, the Bible is this amazing, wonderful, God-inspired, transformational book, but it doesn't, it's not a science book. It doesn't say a lot about science. It doesn't say, it, the Bible doesn't talk about photosynthesis yeah. or the orbits of the planets that much or anything like that. So I found very little to uh, contradict or conflict with mm. that. And as I learned about the history of science, I learned that I'm not alone in this, which is always very comforting. Yeah, right. It's reassuring. But when I was kind of preparing for this podcast, I um, was looking at some of the history of the conflicts between you know, science and religion. And I found a couple of quotes that I found pretty interesting. Yeah. The first one, the quote is, gravity explains the motions of the planets but it cannot explain who sets the planets in motion. And that's Isaac Newton. Interesting. So, <laughs> you know, Newton really believed that. He really believed yeah. that, and as do I, that just because we discover, oh, it's that force doing such and such, or that was formed via erosion or whatever, yeah. it, it doesn't say, it, I, I look at that, I look at something like, you know, Arches National Park, mm -hmm. and I can simultaneously say, erosion did that and god did that yeah our god was so powerful to, to create this crazy earth that would erode in certain ways to create yeah. things like arches and national park <laughs> exactly and this other quote i have kind of approaching it from the opposite side of it and this quote says science investigates religion interprets science gives man knowledge which is power religion gives man wisdom which is control science deals mainly with facts religion deals mainly with values the two are not rivals, they are complementary. Mm. That quote is uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Dr. King is always a uh, good person to have in your corner, and he goes on to talk more about that. But he believed that too, that science gives us a lot of great things. There's a lot of great discoveries we've made, and none of them are really conflicting with a deep faith in God. Yeah. Yeah, there was something you mentioned to me as we were kind of prepping for this that I just was really struck by. So to read another quote, this is a quote from Eric Schoening. <laughs> but you said that, in my opinion, there's nothing that science has discovered or could discover that would disprove the existence of God or reduce my faith in God. On the contrary, every new scientific discovery puts me in more awe of how big our God is, how much he cares for his creation, his incredible attention to detail, and how he uses scientists and works through science to help us make this broken world a better place to live in. I just thought that was this really great 
just approach to thinking about this kind of incompatibility or compatibility of science and faith. It's, it's, it's actually one of the most compatible relationships because every scientific discovery is this excuse to like praise and worship this God who's even bigger still than we previously had known, right? So I, I just really thought that was, that was cool. And I was kind of thinking about what some examples of that might be. Yeah. You know? And so I kind of wanted to start with something big. It's just thinking about the universe as a whole, right? Think about the Milky Way galaxy. You know, our galaxy is made up of hundreds of billions of stars. It's, it, it's almost impossible to imagine how big this yeah, thing is. Right. And then beyond that, there's hundreds of billions of galaxies like it. So to the human mind, the size of the universe is basically unfathomable. It's incomprehensible for it's, sure. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of ridiculous how big a place we live in. Yeah. And as we discover that, as we build telescopes and watch the stars and watch the galaxies, if, if this was the first time you were hearing about this, you would kind of think to yourself, well, does that contradict what I believe in God? And to me, the answer is no. In fact, opposite of that, it reinforces what I know about God. As people of faith, when we see how big the universe is, we have to think, how big must this God be to have created this? When you truly think about the wonders of the cosmos, you begin to realize that no matter how big you imagined God is, he has to be even bigger than that, even more powerful, even more awesome in every sense of the word. Yeah, if your baseline assumption is that, yes, there is a God, then every discovery can reinforce that as opposed to contradict that. Yeah. And then going the opposite direction, you can think about the smallest things that people study. Through science, we've discovered that Everything we see around us is made up of atoms. Yeah. These things that are so small that they can't be seen on an optical microscope. Yeah. And then those atoms are made up of even smaller things, protons and neutrons and electrons. And protons and neutrons are made up of even smaller things called quarks. <laughs> so when you just try and wrap your brain around this, how much how much detail our God put into the world and the universe around us. How much more does he care about the details of our own lives, Mm. the people that he created in his own image? Yeah. I feel like you and other scientists probably have just this deeper sense of understanding around the bigness of our God, which can translate into like, I don't know. I would I would think such comfort in this this big God that cares for us personally. Like, how much bigger in your mind is that God <laughs> than than someone who doesn't understand all of the 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 infinite vastness of the universe and the, the tiniest uh, microscopic elements of of the things that make up the universe? It's just yeah, it's, it's incredible. A, it is incredible. It doesn't even have to be that mind blowing. It can just be something as simple as a flower. Yeah, the beauty and detail that. God put into a flower, how much more is his love for us? Yeah. Yeah. And they even, that's, that's scriptural. If he, he cares for the, the sparrows and how much more so than 
would he would he care for for us his people right I want to transition a a little bit here to, like I said, the impetus for this conversation was to talk about Earth Day and and kind of thinking about God's creation and maybe to dig into some kind of conservation topics. But but first, I want to kind of segue into, like, let's just talk about the Earth. So you, you brought up the universe, you brought up the cosmos, and we live... In, in the one place that we know of within the cosmos that is uniquely designed Absolutely. for us to survive. So like tell, tell us about your understanding of, of this planet and how God created it to, to sustain us. When I think about the uniqueness of the earth, my mind goes back, well, it goes back to one of the conversations that we had earlier, which was about conflicts between scientists and the church. And it goes back to Galileo and how he had this major conflict with the church because his observations indicated that the earth, you know, revolved around the sun Mm -hmm. and the church at the time couldn't comprehend that in their mind, the earth was the center of the universe and the center of the solar system. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So in their mind, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it always must be. But when I think about our solar system and obviously we know now that we're part of this larger solar system with several planets orbiting around Sorry, this Pluto. huge sun. <laughs> yes, several is kind of a vague word, and you can put Pluto where you want. But, but the fact that we are, as you said, uniquely situated to, for life to thrive is incredible to me. I think about our neighbors in the solar system, Venus and Mars, they're in some ways, very similar planets to us. Mars is a little more than half the size of the Earth. Venus is so close in size to the Earth that it's often called Earth's twin. And where they are in the solar system, they could theoretically be something that supports life. But the way that they diverge from the Earth shows how unique and special this place is. And a lot of it actually has to do with uh, my field of study, the atmosphere. Hmm. Mars has this very thin atmosphere. And it's, I think the atmospheric pressure is like 100 times less than what we see on Earth. Oh. So, and because of that, it's a very cold place. I believe the average temperature there is something like negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I agree so, a couple coats. <laughs> and then Venus has the opposite problem. It has this very thick atmosphere, hmm. about atmospheric pressure about 90 times greater than the Earth. It has wow. this runaway greenhouse effect. And so its surface temperature is something like 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Huh. So when you see that, when we start studying that, you begin to realize how unique and special the earth is that it's been set up i i believe by god to be this unique amazing place that life can thrive that and specifically the earth was made for humans and humans Mm -hmm. for the earth yeah and knowing that about our solar system just reinforces how much god must love us to put in that kind of detail will make the circumstances just right to make this place mm-hmm. livable, not just for a short period of time, but for its entire history. Yeah, generations and generations and generations. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's incredible to just fathom. And I, I, I feel like I've heard of documentaries about this entire topic. I'm sure there's a lot more to dig into about like just how unique 
the earth is and all of the scientific reasons for, for that. But, but the point is God created this earth and us in it, in a, it, and it's unique to this, this planet. Right. So, I mean, we have this, this incredible gift of the earth. And I, I can picture that late being a call to some folks to like, let's, let's sustain this, this gift that was created for us. And we, this, this opportunity we have to steward this planet, which is kind of what Earth Day is all about, right? Is this, this conservation effort and this, this effort to steward the resources that, that exist on this planet for generations to come. And so I'm, I'm hoping we can get, kind of dig into some of these, these topics of, of yeah. conservation. So I'm going to bring up a topic and then I would love for you to just kind of educate me <laughs> and educate the listeners about just generally what do we need to know about this topic when we, when we hear about it in terms of ideas of conservation, specifically for Utah, but also just in general, like we hear about this in the, in, in the news and stuff. And then also like, how does caring about this particular area of conservation like, how does it have to do with our discipleship to Jesus? So let's let's start with something that's I, I'm thinking near and dear to you and, and your professional background. But we hear about air quality a lot yeah. here in Salt Lake and in, in Utah, and, and we see it visibly with our eyes with with the inversion and with wildfire smoke and things like that. So talk about what do we need to know about air quality and and go yeah, from there. absolutely. So obviously, the air we breathe is something that honestly we take for granted. You know, something that's always been there, hopefully always will be there. But it's also the one thing that we can, can't live without for very long. We can live without water for a bit. We can live without food for even longer. Air, within seconds, you're going to have some problems. <laughs> so air quality, obviously, is very important. And it's obviously something that we hear about a lot here in Utah. So with inversions, typically the uh, atmosphere, as you go up further, higher and higher in the atmosphere, the atmosphere cools as you go up. And the rate at which it cools kind of determines, helps determine how unstable it is and how much vertical motion there is in the atmosphere. When inversions set up, and they can set up anywhere in the atmosphere, but they typically set up near the surface of the earth. And it's, it's the opposite of what we normally see. It's where temperature warms with height, at least to a point. And what that does is that creates a very stable situation where air can't rise. So it's basically when we get these inversions here in Utah, the air is kind of trapped at a very mm-hmm. small layer. And here in Utah and other parts of the Western United States, we also have these big mountains nearby. Yeah. And that inhibits the you know horizontal motion of the air as sure. well. So not only is the air trapped from going up it's also trapped from going side to side so basically anything that we emit whether it's cars or industry or anything else gets stuck in that layer until we can get a storm to come through to kind of blow blow it away and mix it higher in the atmosphere and that sort of thing so it's one of those things that it can set up for days or even weeks at a time so when this pollution you know, starts building up, there's uh, obviously several things that get trapped, including these very small particles. And uh, these particles, especially in higher concentrations, can get into our lungs and cause a lot of breathing problems and yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, so it's definitely something that many Utahns are familiar with. If you're not, unfortunately, you probably will be by next yeah. winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when even to the point of, I feel, when we're not from here originally, and when my wife and I moved out here, we were 
like, well, look, what is this in the air? You can see it and, and hearing about things like childhood asthma rates mm-hmm. are higher here than other places. And, and even like if a, a pregnancy, there's higher miscarriage rates in, in winter months here than elsewhere. I don't, I mean, these, these are things that we had heard and I, I haven't validated these things, but yeah, all that to say um, it's not. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely not good for you. And when we t- talk about, I'll talk here in a second about what's being done about potentially improving this air quality. But when I think about those actions, I, I go back to the biblical principle of loving others and looking out for the most vulnerable among us. Mm. And as you just mentioned, pregnant women and you know, children in the womb, the most vulnerable among us, anyone with asthma or other you know, medical conditions, to them, this air pollution, this air quality concern isn't isn't something theoretical, isn't something minor. It's something that's potentially very dangerous to their health. Yeah. So when we think about air quality and think about ways that we can improve it, I think it's definitely something that is a public service. It's definitely something that is loving those around us yeah. to make things better for everyone. Yeah, that's an interesting selfless approach to wanting to... To, to fix the problem. It's not just like, well, I, I hate the air this way. It's like, well, no, people really can't survive to their best in the air this way. So Absolutely. let's care for them. Yeah. The good news is I tend to be a pretty optimistic person to begin with, but some with air quality, I, I am fairly optimistic that we can do things here. And there's a few reasons for that. One thing I've been very impressed with and very happy with here in Utah is that air quality is a bipartisan issue here. Hmm. It's a nonpartisan issue. It's not something... Historically, we can go back and forth on which party or parties care about care about which issue, th- yeah, yeah. care about which issue. But here, it's not something that goes along party lines in any way. It's something that the legislature has been able to do things over time, over the years, to help improve our air quality, and hopefully, we'll continue to do in the yeah. future because there's still still definitely work to be done. I mean, I don't want to downplay that at all. I think it's definitely something we need to keep working towards. But it is something that we've you know, made some strides with over time. And there's, I'm optimistic that we'll continue to because we continue to do more research on how to make industry less polluting. Yeah. And I think you know, we're, we're building that over time. Cars are definitely a lot less polluting right. than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And it seems that's the trend for the future too. I think a lot of automakers are moving towards zero combust combustion engines in their fleets by yeah, <laughs> within and, a decade or whatever. But And so we'll continue to, as cars get replaced, we'll continue to do that. Obviously, we have a very, we have a growing population. Yeah. So that's a little concerning. But at the same time, the cars are producing less and less and less. That's definitely a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And then in more recent times, one of the kind of silver linings to me of the pandemic is this normalization of telework Mm, and mm -hmm. working from home. And I think that's something that will help our pollution and greenhouse gas emissions and particulate emissions over time is that if more people are able to work from home and maybe situationally, maybe when the weather service says, hey, we're going to be in an inversion for the next week, if we can encourage Businesses that, yeah, yeah, say, hey, if you don't have to drive 15 miles to your workplace, 
that this would be a good time to say, well, let's meet virtually for a yeah, week. Multiply that across 100 employees or whatever. It, that goes a long way. Yeah, and it reminds me of companies. This, you maybe have seen this, but have, there was a, an Apple TV documentary that I watched over the pandemic called The Year the World Changed. Have you seen this? I have it's, not. It's basically about, so in the immediacy of like the, the major lockdowns in the pandemic, spring of last year and throughout the summer, there was like incredible like measurable um, differences in I all bet. kinds of environmental environmental areas. So like one specifically was there cities in India that they had no idea that they could see the Himalayas from, <laughs> from their homes or whatever. And then like give, give a month of no one driving and no, no planes going anywhere, no, yeah. no, no emissions. And like, Oh look, there's mountains off in the <laughs> distance and things like smaller things too, like populated beaches now just having all kinds of sea turtles nesting and having no impediments to the, to the water. So there's a lot of hatchlings that wouldn't ever have had a chance before. So it's, it's fascinating, but just the pandemic, the silver lining there with the environment specifically. And hopefully um, that's a long-term trend. I know there's definitely culture wars and wars within companies about what our new normal or new next is going to look like. Yeah, But I think we can definitely use this as a springboard to be more intentional about what we're doing as far as commuting goes. And you mentioned planes, obviously, if we can take less unnecessary flights while still, obviously still enjoying visiting other places yeah. in the world and you don't want to stop all that. But if we can be more considerate and more intentional in every single time that we go somewhere and think about that, I think it's something that, like you said, can change the world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, so let's move into the second of a, a couple other topics, drought and, and, and water shortages, and talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> no, it, it's no surprise to anyone that lives in the Western United States that we're currently in a, a severe to extreme drought across large swaths of the West. Yeah. And it's something, the current drought has gone for a couple of years, but really the last 20, 25 years, the West has been in drought more often than not. Hmm. And there was a study that was done recently that over the past 20 years, their their findings were that this was the worst drought in the Western United States over the last 1,200 years. Wow. So, and in some ways they're calling this a mega drought, but something that is just not normal. Yeah. <laughs> and so obviously that has big implications across the board water supply and environments. And I mean, I feel like we've seen it so much just in the last, the last few summers that I've been here, just the, the wildfires across the region being more prevalent for one. And, and just the scale of them yeah. seems like I, I'm, I'm not super familiar growing up in the Midwest, but some friends of ours that were talking to us recently that moved from California, they're like, yeah, there's always wildfires. And I remember them all the time, but, but wow, even to them, they're like, they've, never, never this large and just like mega fires. It's definitely been extreme. It's one of the parts of my job currently is I get to support the uh, state of California and go out there whenever they have any significant events, especially weather events. And more often than not, the past few years, it's been wildfires. It's been wildfires that are, as you said, huge. They're devastating. And and they take, obviously, you can never recover from loss of life, but 
it's in terms of property and restoration of environments, these things take years yeah. to recover from. Even with human intervention, even with I've been supporting people on the ground as they clean up debris and clean up dangerous burnt trees and try and reseed the land and that sort of thing. But we're still helping them do stuff from 2018. And it's just, yeah. it, it takes a long time to recover from that. And but it, obviously it's, as I mentioned, it's devastating these communities. And I guess I should point out that the drought is definitely one of the big factors. There are other factors as well. I know a lot of people you know, talk about how we manage our forests. And that's definitely mm. got to go into it. And also, as the population grows, there's a lot of there's a lot more people living near this kind of urban wildland interface. Mm. Where once upon a time, maybe you have a wildfire, and you know, you catch it and you keep it away from the where the people, people are. Live. Yeah. But if it starts and then there's people a mile away, yeah, you're just not going to be able to do that. Right. Right. So all of the above, we have to evaluate all these things when it comes to wildfires, but the drought is definitely one of those things that impacts so many different aspects of the human experience and the animal and plant experience of this part of the country. Yeah, You might be getting into this, but if not, I'll I'll kind of interject and, and lead us in this direction. But along with the drought, you were mentioning something and I admittedly, I feel like I should know more about this because I live here, but like the implications of drought, in, in this region because of the Salt Lake. So tell me, what do I need to know about? about? It's interesting. I'll get to that, but I wanted to kind of do an overarching comment that we've been talking a lot at Capitol about how God speaks in the desert. Mm. I was thinking about this. I was thinking God speaks in drought. There are times when when water is not scarce that you just don't think about it. You have drinking water, the lakes or reservoirs are full. And and maybe even there are times that it's a bit of a nuisance or a bit of a danger when there's flooding, like we had significant flooding in Salt Lake City in the 80s. Yeah. But when you have drought, you begin to appreciate water more. Mm. But something that you realize just how precious it is. Yeah. And I think in that you begin to appreciate the everything that water does for us. Yeah. And one of those is the Great Salt Lake. I mean, I think it's one of those things that, especially in the past, Utahns have kind of taken for granted. It's just that, it's that big thing out there. That big thing out there. Yeah, it, yeah, it's got this smell and it's just there. Right. But it's one of those things that as it's shrunk over the years and we started to realize just how important it is to the state. It's one of those things that has a huge economic impact on the state. Yeah, I saw this one study from the state government that the estimated net economic value of the Great Salt Lake is somewhere $46 million to $95 million annually. Wow. They do a lot of stuff out there. They extract salts and minerals. They harvest brine shrimp eggs. And obviously it has a lot of recreational value as well and things like bird watching and boating and that sort of thing it's also something that has a huge ecological benefit it it provides a food source for this this impressed me 10 million migratory birds annually including about 330 different species that's 
That's impressive. You wouldn't, I don't think of that when I think, like when I found out that the state bird for Utah was the seagull, I was like, that's a lie. Like, <laughs> right? It's not, that's not true, but it is. And it's like surprising that. It is. So yeah, many, you see them around and they, they fill these ecological niches. I think in some ways, sometimes I see more uh, seagulls than I see pigeons and I think, oh, they must have forced the pigeons out. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's, you don't always see the, the impact of, of, a natural habitat like this, but it's it's there right in our backyard. I think it's definitely something that now that we've had this drought and we see antelope island isn't an island anymore. Yeah. And we we see the impact of that. Thankfully it, it's been a wake up call. It's it's been something where everyone from politicians to the general public has said, Hey, this is something we need to think about. Things something we need to work towards so that we can save this place that the city's literally named after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think it's definitely, you know, it, it's definitely something that if we can save it, and I think we can, that maybe we'll appreciate more on the other side. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about if there's, I'm sure there's more we can talk about with the drought for sure, but let's, let's kind of move into another, maybe the last of these kind of topics that I had planned to dig into today. But, and that's kind of, we hear a lot about public lands and kind of preserving the the land that, I don't know how much per- percentage of Utah is is public lands, but it's it seems lot. like a lot compared yeah. to other places I've been. And why should we care about this? Or like, what's what's kind of the impact of of the preservation of of natural landscapes? And yeah, so I mean, I think it goes without saying that the people of Utah are blessed to live here in this place, this place of natural beauty. Mm-hmm. I think it's something we kind of take for granted sometimes, and I'm, I'm guilty of that too. But then about, I don't know, about once a week, I turn a corner and I see the Wasatch. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I remember moving here, and I still do this sometimes. Like, I'm outside of Home Depot, and like, wait, there's mountains in the backdrop of my Home Depot. <laughs> How many other places can say this? <laughs> no, no. So even beyond, and we'll talk a bit about the national parks and state parks and stuff, but even just the Wasatch Mountains and the Ochre Mountains and all these places that are close by to us here in the Wasatch Front are just awe-inspiring to look at. It's, you know, I'm reminded of Jesus' quote in Luke about how if we didn't rejoice, the very rocks would cry mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And it just, that's what I think of, and we talked about this earlier, about finding God in nature. And yeah. that's that's kind of what I think of when I think about preserving public lands and ultimately in my mind preserving these beautiful places is about preserving the beauty of god's creation for all humanity to enjoy yeah god put so much time and effort and detail in creating this incredible world and doing our part to preserve that world is in my mind a way of showing our love to god yeah like hey Thank you, God. This is amazing. I want to keep this amazing for the people around me now and yeah. generations to come. Yeah, that's that's a good motivation. And, I, and I, when we're having this conversation, hyper aware that like stewardship does not mean not using and and not we were we were created to to care for the earth, but also to use the earth, right? And I'm I'm hyper aware that here we are talking on these microphones and there's this devices in front of us here that that would not have been possible without extracting minerals from from the very earth we're talking about protecting so i 
I don't, I hope no one's listening thinking like, well, this is, this is an impossible <laughs> thing. We have to use the land. And of course, it's just, I'm trying to dig into the, the balancing act that that, oh, absolutely. that is. It's in moderation in all things, right? Mm-hmm. God put us in charge of everything on this earth. And part of that is enjoying that by using things properly. Yeah. And like I said, there's this balance. You have to find this balance between not slowing us down as a society, continuing to move forward so we can continue to, you know, make medical advances that help millions of people and that sort of thing. But at the same time, being aware of where we can conserve and, you know, how best to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of how we can do this and and ways we can conserve, I want to get into that, like end on something practical that what can we do? But before I do, maybe is, is there a, an environmental issue that I, we, I didn't ask you about, or like, I don't know what other topics we might want to explore before we dig into like the practical tips. Yeah. There's one more thing about conservation and the, you know, beauty of the earth that I thought of that kind of struck me uh, in my mind preserving nature can almost be a form of evangelism mm. which is something that when I first thought of this I was like really is that what it really is but like many people I feel closest to God when I'm in nature mm-hmm. I'm inspired and awed by him and yeah. and I, I, I know I'm not alone in that I know that there's a lot of humanity is like that yeah and I feel like by protecting these things, we mentioned Arches National Park, for example. By protecting Arches National Park, we are creating an opportunity for others around the world. Currently, people from all around the world are there yeah. seeing God's creation and for generations to come to be similarly awed and inspired. Yeah. So I think indirectly, that helps lead people to God and bring close people closer to God. Yeah. And I think it's just something that we have to be aware of that just think about how you feel when you experience nature that way and realize, hey, I want people a hundred years from now to be able to feel the same exact thing. Yeah. And to feel so small in this universe of similarly spectacular things. Yeah. Creating opportunities like that in the future. That's an interesting aspect I hadn't considered, you know, nature as evangelism. But yeah, well, so let's, let's transition here into some, some practical, let's end with some practical ways. Like what, what are some things listeners can, 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 what can we do on any one of these, these issues to like make an, make a difference? And, and what are some ways we can steward this creation in our, in our own small orbits? Yeah. And one thing I want to stress about conservation is that no matter who you are, or where you are, you can do something. There are certainly big things that you can think of, say, getting a more fuel-efficient vehicle or installing solar panels. Not everyone has the time, energy, or resources to do big things like that. Yeah. And that's fine. You don't have to feel guilty about that. Yeah. I think, as you said, we all can do what we can do in our own sphere of stuff. And there's plenty of small and medium-sized things that we can do. It's cliche at this point, but reduce, reuse, recycle has been (laughs) a um, rallying cry for years now, decades. And 
to a point, I think it's been very successful, but I think also people tend to focus in on the recycle part, which is great. Recycling is great. Yeah. And then, yeah, I recycle. But if you think more about the reduce and reuse part, that can make an even bigger, mm. you know, impact. Okay. Things like right now, here next to me, I have my reusable water bottle. Yeah. By not constantly buying, you know, plastic one-time right. use water bottles, you're saving the plastic, you're saving the shipping costs right. that yeah. it takes to get those <laughs> bottles there. Yeah. I think about that often, especially with the last couple of years where it feels like everyone transitioned, not everyone, but so many people transitioned to like almost exclusively getting resources online, like purchasing and shipping online. And I, I'm sensitive to like, during this time we were buying diapers and I'm like, I will vow to myself never to have a giant box of diapers shipped to my door. <laughs> <laughs> They're just the shipping resources to get giant boxes. Like if I can have fewer times where I'm doing that, like... It feels feels like a small small impact, but it yeah, seems- it's it's a small impact, but it adds up, and that's kind of my attitude. Is it's easy to be wrap, wrap your brain around like, oh, I'm not really making that big of a difference. Yeah. But if if we all th- felt that way and it, when yeah. no one made changes, then exactly the impact is severe. Yeah. Some more things like you know reusable grocery bags or sure. reducing single use containers. Me and my wife, Anna, has been really good about this recently, about how can we reduce our single-use containers, you know, how can we reduce our plastic consumption, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, And reuse. There's a lot of groups out there now. Buy Nothing is one of the ones that come to mind where... I've heard of this, yeah. Yeah, where basically if there's something you have that is still in working order or mostly in working order and you don't need it anymore, instead of taking it, to the dump or whatever, right. say, hey, can anyone use this? Yeah. And more often than not, the answer is, yes, me, me, me. Yeah, and they don't have to pay for it because you want to get rid of it. And they want yeah, to- <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it's it doesn't have to be produced again. Right. And it's it's it doesn't have to be shipped again. So the more you can find ways to reuse the things that already exist in our world instead of just putting them in some landfill, yeah. that, that's a great thing. Yeah. And then some more medium-sized things. And again, this is going to sound cliche, but planting things like flowers and bulbs and trees, hmm. it's uh, flowers and bulbs, and you know, they do things like help our bee population. Planting trees helps the air, and you think that's such a small thing. But every little bit helps. Yeah. And the other thing about it is that even if you don't care about the environmental aspects of it, you're adding beauty to, mm. you know, the world around you. Yeah. You're adding beauty to your neighborhood. And and the, the people who live in your house in the future, if you have yeah, a tree, exactly. you, know, you won't enjoy that, but the, and, the future will. And I really do believe that God works through such things. If someone's walking down the street and they're not feeling so good and suddenly there's flowers or a flowering tree mm. that wasn't there before it's something that i think can brighten all of our days yeah and has an environmental impact as well so (laughs) and then one last thing and maybe we'll be able to share some resources on this but donations to conservation organizations Mm -hmm. i think whether you can give five dollars or more than five dollars if you find the organization you like and that you support their mission every little bit helps to get those funds and resources in the hands of people who are you know 
Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to end with, you know, just a closing thought from you. So, I mean, when we, when we think about the climate and the environment, I think it's easy to jump to like a very kind of doom and gloom sort of conclusion. And I think that's justifiable because a lot of scientists are, are calling for very urgent and, and wide sweeping mitigations just to ensure that our planet is livable <laughs> for decades to come. And, and decades is intentional. It's, it's, it's maybe not far off. It's not like millennia, but like no. it seems more urgent than that, right? But, you know, I also am sensitive to like living in this fear and I, I don't want to have this spirit of fear around around this topic or any topic really. So when you think about this topic kind of at the highest level, I mean, what what is your personal mindset around it all? And how how do you kind of balance this fear for the future that is kind of impressed upon us urgently to a space of hope? I'm, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this as a scientist compared to mine as just a consumer. First of all, it's true. We must continue to change how we interact with the environment, sometimes in large ways to, as you said, ensure that things that decades from now look even the same as they do now, but hopefully better. I think we can't be paralyzed by fear. I think we, in some ways, we have no choice but to act because we only have this one earth. Mm. And if we don't act to protect it, what what will we have left? But as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person. So I don't, I choose not to focus on the negative outcomes if we fail to act celebrate the positive outcomes if we choose to act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, reframing it that way, thinking about leaving a healthy planet to leave for future generations, thinking about, as we talked about, preserving the beauty of God's creation for those who come after us. I mean, those are not small things. Those are yeah. great things that we can do as a people. I think of conservation as an act of love. Mm. Love for obviously plants and animals, but also love for our fellow humans and saying we care about you and the environment you live in. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, kind of a, a thank you note to God with saying thank you for creating this amazing place. I want to acknowledge that by doing the best I can to make sure that others can enjoy it after mm-hmm. me. And Ultimately, kind of putting a bow on it, I guess my optimism comes from faith. I think of Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So we're not alone in this. God is with us every step of the way, and you know, he will continue to be as we do our best on this topic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the time today and just the, the insight and the expertise that you you bring to this this field. And yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Eric and Eric. And thank you all for listening. Yeah, we will throw some links to some of the organizations we mentioned um, in the show notes. And also, if you liked what you heard today, give us a rating, mm-hmm. share this with a friend, subscribe. We will be back with you in a couple of weeks.